do a lot of VCs are heavily involved in the in the universities. But they are or they are they are, right? I mean Gavin Christensen teaches at BYU. Okay. You are heavily involved with the of you, but you've got labor connection. But a lot of VCs like even will teach at Stanford. Yeah. And so it's my understanding a lot of VCs get university positions. But university students probably I don't think that gives them a better opportunity to get funded. And I don't know how many VCs actually get funding from other than it allows them to build connections, but my guess is a bunch of those are wannabes. Is it beneficial for a VC before we like dive into like the, is it the beneficial point? for a VC to engage with the university? Yeah. For the VC, not for the students. Well, I think that a lot of VCs that teach at Stanford would argue that if they're able to source a really great deal, you know, they're able to meet a great entrepreneur and build a relationship there that it only takes one to justify it. Right. It's like we invested in Omaze and the founder of Omaze, Matt uh, Polson, like his roommates were the founders of like DoorDash and Snapchat. But did they do that as a student? I think the DoorDash guys did, yeah. I think they launched as students. But typically, like statistically, the big wins come from what age group? 40 and above? 30 and above? Yeah. You'll get a lot of like random outliers, but I don't know how many like, I don't know, we just thought I had this. So. I don't think that the main motivation for VCs to engage with universities is deal flow. Is deal flow or it just takes a lot of time. Like Gavin, he has to drive to Provo. I think it's something Gavin really enjoys. I really enjoy it. Oh yeah, I mean I he like can working with students. Like I think that in of itself. Is I just want to be very clear. It. I think Gavin's awesome. It was just it was a thought I saw. You just think he wastes his time. I get it. So can I go off script? I know you said you weren't prepared for this question. I think those sometimes create the best podcast is what is the future of venture capital? And the reason I'm asking is I was listening to a podcast with Jason Calcanis and they're talking about how the market is changing. Yep. And so for a lot of software startups, one software is much cheaper to start a software company now than it was then. It used to be much, much more expensive. When's Second, then? Then is, I mean, even like, even from like five years ago, definitely yep. from 10 or 20 years ago. Yep. So you can get something off the ground fairly easily yep. is now something where individuals can self-fund it, friends and families can self-fund it. I think at that point, I think angels have more power now than they used to because I think VCs were kind of trumping them, but some people just need a little bit more cash to get off the ground. And then instead of going the traditional Series A VC route, you've got companies like Pipe that if they're, and especially with something like SaaS where they can look at your revenue and if mm-hmm. your revenue is predictable, you in theory could just say, hey, I don't know what pipes terms are maybe they take 20% off of a, a deal that's paid in year in advance but yeah. you don't have you know don't have dilution so to be fair though pipe is still early right it's still not proven out it's it's a fantastic idea we'll see if it actually ends up working you you don't think pipe will work out i'm not saying that it won't work out i'm just saying like Let's it's hard about- to say that like though the whole world changed because we now have this company called pipe which has only done a few million dollars worth of transactions so mm-hmm. far so like could it? I think it's a fantastic idea. I think there's a high degree of likelihood that it could be successful. Mm-hmm. But I wouldn't say that like, oh, now we need to throw out all the models because this company called Pipe exists, yeah. right? Like it's very possible that Pipe could launch and it turns out that the lending they're doing is more risky than they anticipated and they have to charge higher rates, pri- ri- rates in order for it to work, mm-hmm. in which case then all of a sudden it's not quite as attractive as it used to be, right? So that's all I'm saying. I don't, we don't know yet, right? Like it's just too early to know yet. But yes, no, I agree. Like it's never been easier to start a company. It's never been easier to raise money, right? Particularly in the current environment where a lot of people are flush with cash. You add on not just pipe, but you add on like the equity crowdfunding environment which has raised hundreds of millions of dollars. 
uh, for startups, right? So you've got WeFunder, you've got uh, StartEngine, you've got Republic. Republic just announced like this huge Series B fundraising, you know, and they're mm-hmm. doing everything from like equity to NFTs to real estate to video games. Like you can equity crowdfund anything these days. You've got big funds like Graycroft that just announced a $500 million seed fund, which is like crazy. Um, particularly because they're like, we're going to write $20 million checks into seed stage companies, right? Okay. Um, and I think what you're seeing is like, everybody is like fighting to get in earlier and earlier and earlier because all of the big funds that used to be only public equities investors, these hedge funds, they've, uh, they've all moved down market into the growth stage. So that's become more competitive. And now they're even starting to move into the series B's and the series A's. And those are becoming more competitive and that's forcing everybody else further down the stack to like the seed, pre-seed, that whole thing. So now you've got more capital than ever chasing deals at the earliest stages. And on top of that, you've got, it's never been easier to start a company Mm -hmm. than ever before. And so like, there's this question of like, hey, I can start these lifestyle SaaS businesses that may not really be venture backable. And then other people that are like, no, I want to build like this big scalable thing. And... There's a lot of money flowing into it. Then you add on top of all of that, the, this whole concept of blitz scaling that's been popularized over the last few years where it's like, hey, look, we're just we're going to basically anoint the winners with lots mm-hmm. of cash, right? And that's what you see with Tiger Global is largely doing is coming in saying, hey, you know what? We're going to kind of anoint the winner because we're going to provide them with a lot of cash high valuation. It'll be hard for com- competitors to catch up, right? Mm-hmm. And that makes it tough if you're not in that company you're in one of the competitors, like that's like that's tough, right? Like dollars can actually create competitive advantage so if this, they're used efficiently. Does this keep you up at night? Does it keep me up at night? I mean, I think the question that I'm always thinking about is can we move fast enough to not miss out on great opportunities? Now, our funds are a little different, right? Like I don't have to compete with a Tiger Global per se, mm-hmm. right? I'm not leading Series A rounds, right? If I was a fund that was a handful of friends, for the you know lack of a better word, partners, okay, with very little competitive advantage and a few hundred million bucks in AUM, I think I'd be terrified, right? Where, like, like literally strat- terrified, or well, I don't know if they are, but I would be. Like, if I don't have any, like, if capital is my only competitive advantage, right? I'm a commodity in this market. Mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of funds that kind of fit in that bucket where it's like, what what do you offer that's really unique? Because are- you have funds that will offer you speed. Okay. You have funds that will offer you expertise. You have funds that offer you brand. And if you don't have all those, like at least one of those in spades, like I think you're you're in a tough spot. Am I old fashioned where for the most part, if I were to raise, I'd be trying to get the brand, which would help me raise for the next one. But outside of that, I don't know how many of these funds help. Like I've got a friend who works for Andreessen Horowitz and they've got like a whole... Like a thousand people that will That, that work and like, but I don't know how much they're actually doing. And I'm also assuming if you're not like the top two or three in their portfolio... They don't care. Yeah. Well, actually what usually happens is that your top two or 3% of your portfolio, you don't do anything for them. Okay. Because they don't need your help. But then the rest, you're probably like, how do we... <laughs> the rest of the time you spend like trying to help your your other companies that do need help, Executive right? he- Executive headhunting. Yeah, I mean, a lot of funds will do, will help with like strategy and headhunting and opening the door to potential customers. Do you, do you think they're good at that? I think some funds are good at it. I mean, look at Josh James when he started Domo. He yeah. started Amateur, he had tons of cash. I would argue that Domo 
was a much more difficult beast than he anticipated. And he was a seasoned founder. Yeah. He just took a few years off. Yeah. I was talking to a VC once and they said that um, the best startup is number three for an entrepreneur, the, if, assuming the first one is marginally successful. Okay. Second one, always avoid, because they'll always go into it with a lot of hubris. And then fund the deal, you know, company three, like they've kind of learned their lessons across the first two. And they, those tend to be the biggest success. So if, if you count code base, if you don't count my first business, which is a lot of my business, I'm in my third business. Yeah. And look at code base. It's crushing it. Mm -hmm. So if you think about what a VC does, you are like stepping out on a limb and saying, I'm going to give money to this crazy idea. Mm-hmm because this is the future, right? And like, yes, entrepreneurs are also essentially saying the same thing. They're like, I'm dedicating my life to this like well, this thing. But like VCs do that again and again and again and again mm -hmm. um, when they make investments in subsequent companies. And if you're not, if you don't have like confidence. It has to be soul, sh soul shaking. Yeah, know? I mean, you gotta be confident, right? And, and so, you know, I, I can see. And then you layer on top of that that they say no more often than they say yes. Mm -hmm. And... And they can come off as very, very cocky and arrogant. Because it's like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're like, well, I've dedicated my life and soul to this thing. How mm -hmm. can you tell me my baby is ugly? You're so arrogant. Rah, 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 right? I mean, and maybe it's a two-way street. <laughs> maybe, uh, you know, I was on the on the angel side, which is like yeah. pseudo VC. And then I'm now a founder that's specifically stayed away from funding. Yeah. You know, every now and then I'll be like, I wonder how my life would be different. Yeah. But generally, I'm like, you know what? It's easier to go close another contract yeah. than it is to go, you know, kiss a VC. Yeah. No, that's fair. And look, like, I think you are right to an extent. Like, there are VCs that don't really empathize with the entrepreneur, right? They've mm -hmm. never been through it. They don't, they don't understand how much it sucks, you know, the highs, the lows, the mental pressure. And they just, you know, sit in their ivory tower. But, you know, look, I think that day is going away. Mm -hmm. because entrepreneurs can get capital from a lot of different sources. And so, you know, historically, it used to be the competitive advantage was capital, mm -hmm. right? I got money, so come kiss the ring, right? Mm -hmm. And now entrepreneurs are like, yeah, no, uh, there are a lot of places that have capital, right? You've got capital, but so do all these other people and platforms, and I can sell my, my product, and I don't need as much money to begin with right? All of these things. And all of a sudden, like, that's not a compelling competitive advantage anymore. So as far as the future of venture capital to the way you would look at it right now is money's a commodity. Uh -huh. um, you were getting a lot more pressure from these bigger funds upstream. Mm -hmm. um, I think you're saying if, you know, if you're a, like a, a, a VC fund of just a bunch of friends, if you have no real competitive advantage, it's tough. And then a lot of the VCs are trying to differentiate. I do agree that executives that are willing to come to startups are probably few and far between and it's probably better to work with a vc mm -hmm. where they probably get hit up by a bunch of very proficient professionals that are also interested in you know taking a risk and and scoring big sure. that a regular headhunting firm couldn't find yeah i think well look if if sequoia comes in and leads your round that's an incredibly mm -hmm. strong brand and subsequently it's going to be easier. Like if you're you're debating whether or not you should join the startup, knowing that Sequoia invested gives you confidence that the mm -hmm. company is probably going to be able to raise another round and another round and raise a lot of money and so funny story should become the success, right? Funny story from my past when I did Boom Startup, which was like yep. a super. What do you even call Boom Startup? A, an accelerator. I don't. An know. An accelerator. We gave people like 15k, but even 15k from an external source 
seem to give those founders either the confidence or the people wanting to join them the confidence of like, hey, this is actually a backable idea with some yeah. type of traction. And it's kind of funny because looking back at it, I'm like, man, it was 15K. Like, it's like, yeah, but it was 15K how, how long ago, you know? 2010? Yeah, Adjusted so. for inflation, 25K? 20 years. Okay. But I mean, Ten but years, more than years. that, it's like the social proof, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the social proof helped from either somehow helped them build, I think, attract slightly better talent. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this, Peter? In terms of the future of venture? Yeah, the future of venture. Look, I, I think that the thing that's challenging with venture is that it kind of comes and goes in waves, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's like history. It never repeats, but it rhymes. So that sounded like very profound. I've I, never heard that phrase before. <laughs> if you were to anoint the industry and change it right now, what would you do? How, how would you change the industry? Is that too big of a question? I saw I mean, that that's your eyes just like. such a big question. Yeah. I mean, because to me, I believe in markets. And so it's hard for me to say like. That the market's not It's hard efficient. for me to be that arrogant to say like, oh, I know exactly what needs to happen here. What would be the, what's because the first thing that comes to Because I believe to a certain mind, extent, like what needs to happen is happening and is playing okay. out, right? And so you're seeing people responding to Tiger Global, which sounds like it's just, they're taking big, much bigger bets much earlier on. And paying higher valuations, yeah. So I mean, did, the, the, essentially what they're doing is they're saying, okay, and this is this is one of the things that, that I have tried really hard to understand better, is that when you work in venture, especially for longer than like five years, it's hard to see the potential in the long run. Okay, so keep going. So I'll give you an example, right? Like we looked at SpaceX back uh, a number of years ago, and it was a, at a ten billion dollar valuation, and they had they had like it, they did like a billion in revenue, and at the time we were like, wow, ten x on a rocket company, like that's just feels so expensive. And in part of my head, I was like, but I think this company could be worth a hundred billion, right? Today, SpaceX is worth a hundred billion. The reason it's worth a hundred billion is because some investors believe that it will be worth hundreds of billions into the future, right? And that was not something that like I believed when we looked at it, right? Mm-hmm. I could see it getting to 100 billion, but I didn't know that, right, if I could believe it could get much yeah. bigger than that. But, but he's the also thing is like-, like the whole global economy is opening up, Okay. right? You've got like, I don't even know how many companies that we've looked at or we've invested in where the employees are spread out all over the globe, right? Probably most, if not all, have mm-hmm. employees all over the world. Um, you have not only employees all over the world, but you have consumers of goods all over the world. And as economies grow and uh, GDP improves, people have more disposable income and that results in larger markets. And so I think going all the way back to what to Tiger Global and to a lot of these funds that are deploying billions of dollars into these companies, it's basically saying, hey, look, the world economy, like we are bullish on the world economy it's going to continue to grow and perform and do well and the markets that we look at today that are worth billions or hundreds of billions or whatever like they're going to be worth multiples of that into the future and correspondingly these companies that we're investing in will as well right like to me it blew my mind that like we would ever have a trillion dollar company and now like we have companies over two trillion everything's possible with inflation (laughs) well inflation is definitely part of it but but, but also these, the, but the, these the companies were also really big before inflation. I mean, back when we were doing, so. when I first got into like the SaaS space, yeah. you know, a lot of the times the focus was what market are you going after? I remember like TechCrunch 
was publishing articles at the time, and they, they, their hypothesis of an article I read, which I don't know if it was right or wrong, mm-hmm. was that the models that are working in the U.S. are probably the models that will work in the Brazil, as Brazil's becoming an emerging market. So yep. find models that worked well and then try to transplant them. That was something I looked at, or I don't know if I looked at it, but I thought about it fairly seriously. I know HireVue was a local company that focused on the U.S. market, and I'm like, I don't know why video interviews would not be popular in a country like Brazil. Sure. And so, but at the time, it was very like, it but was now, copying but, and pasting. Where right now, I think you would just go. But now companies just expand internationally. Mm-hmm. And international, like some of the clients are working with now, internationalization is one of the things right out of the gates. Yeah, we're going to support these three languages, which yep. I don't think was something common even a couple of years ago. Yeah. So these markets just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so then, if you're Tiger Global or you're one of these big funds, you look at it and you say, if these markets are so big and they're growing so fast, then you can almost take a seed stage strategy where you're like, all right, I'm going to deploy money into a lot of companies and I'm going to hope that one of them isn't worth a billion dollars, isn't worth 10 billion. I'm going to hope that like a handful of them are worth 100 billion, 200 billion, 300 billion, mm-hmm. right? And when, when you get to that level of scale, you can make up for a lot of losses, right? And so I think that's part of this thesis here, right? And, and plus it's like, hey, we're going to hold these things longer. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so part of Sequoia's whole strategy is like, hey, most of the gains that Sequoia generates for their LPs happen after a company goes public, not before. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in the public markets, in the public markets, because they hold the, the, the investments longer. Right. A lot of venture funds have this have these restrictions, like when the company goes public, you have to sell because you're not a public equities investor. Or it's a 10-year fund, so if the company takes 15 years to eventually become Airbnb, then, well, too bad. You like you have, you should have sold five years ago, right? Mm-hmm. And you missed out on all of this value creation that happened in the subsequent five years. Whereas, like, Sequoia, you know, and others basically look at this and say, nobody else has better information and better experience and a better exposure to this company than we do. Why would we not take advantage of that 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 information advantage and hold it for longer if we feel like that's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think there need going back to your earlier question. I think there needs to be uh, changes in like structure uh, of how funds are structured and how capital is deployed, and for fund managers to get out of this like old school way of thinking of it that it's a two and twenty ten year fund, blah blah blah. Uh, and realizing like, hey, there are maybe different models that could work better for different types of startups and mm-hmm. funding environments. And let's be flexible, which also means that LPs, investors in these funds, also should be thinking similarly, like maybe there are more unique structures and we need to be like more comfortable and okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, if we want really, really want to maximize like ultimate returns. Okay. But as Sorry, far as that was a lot of rambling, a lot of rambling and not a lot of specifics, but a lot of high level. I feel like you're we're seeing like a lot of things like with the safe note and convertible notes okay. that are happening in the seed stage. Okay. Um, I'm also not as familiar with the later stage, you know, stage mm-hmm. deal terms. That's something I should probably get more up to speed on. Mm-hmm. But it'll be interesting to see what's happening. But yeah, like you're seeing your Tiger Global and these others are just they're anointing the you know in theory the winners. Mm-hmm. If there's an actual true economic market and they throw in cash, it makes it almost impossible for anyone else to compete. 
But then Although not impossible, mm-hmm. right? And some of these companies are imploding like we work. And some, yep. what was the dog one that imploded too? The dog There one. was like a dog walking Airbnb one. Was it Woof? Wag? Or wag, yeah, Wag. I didn't know Wag imploded. But well, I don't know it imploded, but I think it had significant internal issues. No. Too much well, cash I mean, Soft, SoftBank went out, and I mean, that's what they were kind of saying is like, we're going to anoint the winners, right? And they made a whole bunch of investments, and some of them, like we worked, didn't pan out quite as well as they had hoped. Mm-hmm. But you know, others are doing very well. So, and I think, I think that's what I'm saying. I think like the Tiger Globals looked at that and they said, hey, it's not that SoftBank totally got it wrong, mm-hmm. right? Maybe they were a little over allocated in some deals like WeWork. But the fundamental thesis of like, let's deploy a bunch of capital, let's make a ton of bets, let's move really fast so that we become the funder of choice for entrepreneurs, right? allows us to to basically see, place a lot of bets in some of the best companies out there, and some of those will go on to become um, huge companies, right? The next Googles, the next Ubers, the next Airbnbs, the next Facebooks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And if, was, you, if you invest and you hold in on to like a Google from the time it goes public to today, like you're up hundreds of X on that deal. How is the market changing what you guys do at the University Growth Fund? So for us, the thing that keeps me up at night is just the speed at which great deals Internal. get done. And so that means that How we fast are have these deals to move really fast. Getting done. I mean, a week? Two companies weeks? are getting term sheets like after a, an initial call. Okay. Which gives you right, how much time to respond. Right, that same day. Okay. And then they're closing. Like I've heard of deals getting closed in like two weeks, three weeks. Mm-hmm. From, from like the first meeting to like money in the bank, which is insanely fast. How much time does it take uh, University Growth Fund to close it on a deal? Uh, we've done it in as little as a week and a half. Okay. What's the standard? I like six weeks. Okay. Six weeks is good. I don't always get it. I rarely get it. I don't know. But Why do you like six weeks? Uh, I just, you don't feel rushed. You can actually get through all of your diligence and feel really good about your decision at the end of the day. Okay. And for us, right, we're running a student program, so it's like teaching students and having them like work through it, and they're balancing it with classes. And so for us, that six six weeks is ideal. But like I said, we've done it in a in a in a week and a half okay. for the right deal. What's been your biggest miss? Either that, you know or you what deal? Had big you know what deal that I that I regret not pursuing harder? Which is uh, it was Divi. Divi. Yeah, the local so, Divi. The local Divi. Yeah. Why? So I had a lot of friends that were like, hey, you got to check out this this company Divi, Divi. Like they're doing really well. And it was really early. And I, and I thought, honestly, I got them confused with another company. And, and I, okay. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. And uh, I, I should have pursued it harder than I did. So kind of missed that one. I don't know for sure that they would have given us an opportunity to invest. So I, I don't want to you know suggest that we had that opportunity. But... Mm-hmm. It's one that I wish I had pursued more aggressively um, at the very earlier, early stages. Okay. We still may not have done it, but and they still may Fair not enough. have let us in. But yeah. I like that honest approach. See, there's no ego from Peter. There's a lot of ego from Peter. I don't think there's, I mean, there's confidence. I think there's a difference between confidence and ego. Well, awesome. Anything else you'd like to add to this, Peter? No, this is fun. Thanks for letting me ramble. All right, you better head off to the University of Utah and go judge those students. Their ideas, not the students. I did that on purpose. Awesome. Sounds good. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks, Peter.